This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Hello and welcome to Trumpet Hour. I'm Philip Nice. A happy and healthy Wednesday to you or Thursday if you're catching the replay or whatever time or day that you might be listening if you listen on demand at thetrumpet.com. Trumpet Radio has listeners here and there right around the world, as they say, and I'm reminded of that this weekend, especially with so many visitors in town here around the Trumpet offices from more than a dozen states and eight countries by my account. A lot of them are listening to Trumpet Radio, the Trumpet Daily, the Cube David, and 10 other English language podcasts. You can see them all and try out your German and Spanish too, if you like, at thetrumpet.com slash radio. Much is available to you on thetrumpet.com and much is happening in and around the Trumpet offices as I speak here in studio at the administration building. We'll give you a peek into this building, the campus around it, and a few other locations around the world. That will be for our last segment. For our lead segment today, we are devoting the time to an interview with Jorg Mardian. Now, I'd like to take a couple minutes to introduce this. If you go to thetrumpet.com slash radio and you click through 82 pages, you would go through the recordings of all Trumpet Hour episodes to date. There are 813 of them going back to a Friday morning in May 2015. Hello, this is Joel Hilliker, Managing Editor of the Philadelphia Trumpet News Magazine and your host for Trumpet Hour. That was the first 30 seconds or so of the first episode with the creator of Trumpet Hour, Joel Hilliker. A few months ago, he moved on to a number of additional responsibilities. And a couple of nights ago, he was given additional, additional responsibilities. And of course, he continues to manage the Philadelphia Trumpet magazine, as he has done for more than 26 years now, in fact. Thetrumpet.com slash go slash subscribe if you're not already a beneficiary of those labors. But back to the early days, Trumpet Hour was only a few months old when we come to the January 13th, 2016 episode. Bread. It is the staff of life. It's been a major staple of the human diet for thousands of years. Should your diet include white bread, whole grain bread, or no bread? I have with me Jorg Mardian, a registered holistic nutritionist via Skype from his office in British Columbia. Hello, Jorg. Hello there. Appreciate you coming on. So uh, what are some of the problems associated with good old white bread? Well, it's hard hard to know where to start there. (laughs) (laughs) So January 13th, 2016, that was the first episode of Trumpet Hour featuring a segment with Jorg Mardian. This is the first episode I found, and I think it is the first one. If you go to thetrumpet.com and search M-A-R-D-I-A-N, you will find one article prior to January 2016. I I think that that article is what led to that first Trumpet Hour segment and led to the dozens and dozens of articles and radio segments that were to come. So here's the title of that initial article, by the way. Is your heart older than you are? 
these titles are perfect. I noticed that as a reader, these titles, and as a workaday editor, uh, the titles are perfect. Is Your Heart Older Than You Are? The Low Fat Fable? The Sweet Deception of Splenda? The Scent of Danger? Health Dangers Behind the Mask? Extreme Diets? The Big Fat Trap? Seniors, stay strong, keep moving through the decades, cross-train your brain, and you can do bodyweight exercises. Just a couple of examples. And, and those articles deliver on those titles. Looking at how food affects your mood, looking into whether your health is for sale, alerting you to the plastification of the planet, asking whether commercial baby food is a formula for health, helping you think of your diet as nutritional math, and think of natural remedies as God's pharmacy, explaining the junk food hangover, explaining whether lab-grown meat is just another junk food, protecting yourself from food poisoning and from chemicals in your cookware, spilling the beans, as he writes, on excessive caffeine, prompting you to do the simplest workout of all and improve your posture. I'm going to do that right now. There are more than 60 articles on here, and the dozens and dozens of accompanying trumpet hour segments with joel hilliker and then jeremiah jacques and me and i do mean to slow down for a minute in this way as a way to just appreciate these years of efforts by this particular listener and contributor he has interviewed about and written on dozens and dozens of health topics and he leads by example as well he puts those principles into practice himself And to that end, and in the interest of making sure his eyes don't get older than he is, he has informed me that he has had to make the hard decision of eliminating eye strain that a lot of us get uh, from staring at a computer screen too much. So this is Jorg Mardian's last radio segment for Trumpet Hour. He has devoted years of work and even strain to helping everyone who will listen, everyone who will read, to push themselves to better health. So I invite you to give this segment a listen. I'm here with registered nutritionist and certified personal trainer from British Columbia, Jorg Mardian. What we're going to discuss is perhaps the best single rule of thumb in nutrition. And that rule of thumb has to do with organic foods. Organic foods. So, Mr. Mardian, we hear that phrase a lot. We see that phrase a lot. We see it advertised. Uh, Organic foods. What does that phrase really mean, organic? Well, organic has to do with quality. Uh, I preach quality and quantity always to my clients. Uh, so it's how much you eat and the quality of the food that you eat. Organic is just um, grown in a way that's healthy to the human body um, without all the chemicals, without all the soil stripping, you know, biodynamic methods of growing food so that it's actually nourishing to our body and we don't move towards a state of disease. When I was a teenager, I remember one time my mother offering to uh, get me a candy bar. It was a rare occasion, so so that maybe that's why I remember it. And I just remember thinking, this thing tastes a little bit like a factory. Uh, I sort of realized then that this did come from a factory. I mean, it had tread. It was a Snickers bar, and if you look at the bottom of those, they have a tread mark on the bottom from the conveyor belt. So we're talking about the difference between foods that contain that came from a factory and obviously a lot of unnatural ingredients. I, when I think of organic, I think of natural, the way it was created before there were factories. Is that uh, an accurate assessment? Well, that's right. What you what you tasted was ingredients put together to fool your tongue, right? Our senses. So 
you'll get salt, sugar, fats, unhealthy fats. And, uh, you know, I heard one time that if you taste a cracker without the salt and all the other stuff on it, you would spit it out. <laughs> I mean, it's just so bland. It's garbage food, really. So you're putting garbage into your body, and they're just fooling us to get it past our palate. Once that hits your body, then just a whole cascade of events happen. So right now, there, there's a humongous battle brewing that I've noticed between the conventional and the organic systems. You cannot look on the internet and see enough about how bad organics are. I'm stunned, you know. But th the truth is, uh, you know, people are waking up. There's more than $60 billion in organic consumables that were sold. So consumers are demonstrating that they want something that's superior to their body and to the environment. And I think in the long run as well to the economy, because think about it. You can't argue this. If you're healthy, the economy is humming. I mean, we don't want an economy run on health care, sick people. I know certain um, entities do want that, but that's not what we're after here. There's a strong, a small number of strong corporations that have extensive control over every aspect of food production. And, and they're dominating the industry right now. You know, like we'll look at the U.S. corn and soy, the genetically modified and they just devastate the environment through herbicides like Roundup. And, you know, and there's this, this whole system of food production with products designed to work together, such as linking seeds with specific chemicals like weed killer, you know, glyphosate. That's the active ingredient in um, Roundup herbicide. It's the most used agricultural chemical in history, I should say. And according to the uh, International Agency for Research on Cancer, uh, it's a probable carcin uh, carcinogen. I was looking up at the uh, Canadian Food Inspection Agency site, and they revealed that nearly 30% of the more than 3,000 foods they tested contained glyphosate. Now, this stuff is horrendous to our bodies. Pharmaceutical companies consider this extremely lucrative, you know, and it's an ongoing source of revenue. Sickness is an ongoing source of revenue. That's why the industry right now is just portraying such a fierce bias in defense of conventional agriculture. And they're using language similar to when vaccines were introduced, if you listen. So they'll tout safety in the face of contrary evidence that continuously proves them wrong. I mean, we know that conventional agriculture is, is bad for us. Um, genetic engineering advances may uh, see some plants become more disease-resistant, pest-resistant, drought-resistant, you know, yeah, that's true. They may even yield higher, produce higher yields for farmers and lower costs for consumers. That is true. But here's the question, at what cost? You know, we live in a time of increasing diseases to these toxic chemicals and genetic materials, and they're produced simply as a way to improve profit at the expense of, of uh, public health. So if you think about it, human beings for all of human history have eaten organically. They've eaten naturally. They've eaten foods the way that they were created uh, originally. Then, as we come to the modern era, we have the ability now to change food, to then in insert chemicals into the process of producing and packaging and transporting those things to grocery stores. Uh, and at first, it seemed like a dream. It was, it was amazing. People loved it, right? You can get anything at, at the store, and it tastes great, and it's sweet, and it's salty. And then, uh, more recently, in recent decades, we've seen people realize, wait a minute, something has gone very wrong 
with uh, this system. And I saw one of the presidential candidates was actually pledging to go after the uh, chemicals in our food, in our environment. So we're, we are seeing, and people are waking up to what extremes that corporations, that the system, as you said, uh, will go to to make profits to and to protect itself, whether it's a media corporation or whether it's a pharmaceutical corporation or whether it's a food corporation or whether it's a food corporation owned by a pharmaceutical corporation. Your argument is that organic foods, as they were originally created, are in fact superior. So what are those main benefits of organic foods? Yeah, well, I've, I find it striking that we have to define food as organic. Food should be natural. We have to give it a label. Why do we give it a label? Because of what you said. We've created this entire ecosystem of foods, and now we have to have two tiers of foods. And one is supposed to be free of prohibited substances, you know, and, and really organic food should, um, they're supposed to be free of those for three years to be eligible for that organic seal through the USDA. And so what we're trying to do is not have synthetic herbicides and pesticides and fertilizers and genetically modified crops. Those are all really bad for the body. Antibiotics or growth hormones are they're horrendous as well. So um, we want to make sure that as the data shows, organic foods provably, provably have fewer pesticide residues than conventionally grown produce. Uh, but there's this unfortunate idea that organic farmers are secretly using more pesticides than conventional farmers. And, and you know, I see this popping up all over. It's, it's untrue. You know, this is despite that organic farmers use natural methods, sophisticated crop rotation. Uh, they disrupt the, that disrupt the environment for these pests. They introduce soil organisms and insects that benefit the crops, as well as traps or barriers, you know. And if you get a product that's organic, then it's not going to have artificial flavors and preservatives and chemical concoctions, hormones, and all of that stuff that's not good for us. That's the way it's supposed to be, of course, you know. And there's a relationship between how we grow foods and our health, you know. And, and few people talk about that, you know. I'm big on crop rotation. I'm big on um, making sure that the soil is is treated properly. You nurture that soil. If you don't nurture the soil, you don't nurture your health. We don't hear about that. All we hear is yield, yield, yield. How, what can we do to get more and and just and just slap the soil down year after year? There's no rest for it, you know. What about the cows that have access, proper access to forage? They produce milk that contains. 25% um, less omega-6 fatty acids, which are not as good for us, and 62% more omega-3 fatty acids. That's a wonderful profile for our health. More vitamin E, beta carotene, and CLAs, and all of that good stuff that's for, uh, good for our body. You won't hear that in the arguments. All you hear about is how much can we produce as well as a, as a last point on these benefits, uh, they contain organic foods contain significantly higher levels of antioxidants, and on average, m more of the certain vital nutrients than conventionally grown fruits. You would never know that if you look at the arguments out there. You would never know it. But it's nonsense to think that you can take the soil, abuse it year after year after year, put all these chemicals on it, and say this is the same. <laughs> as Joe Farmer, who's taken all this effort 
to nurture his soil and say this it has the same value to you nutritionally it's nonsense i think people are waking up i think they have to wake up to realize we are basically in an adversarial relationship with food producers <laughs> you 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 don't realize that you, you know you wonder uh you know why do some people talk so much about nutrition and and you know this and that it's because tragically something that should not be the case is absolutely the case we are in an adversarial relationship with the people that produce food especially when it comes to corporations that are there for the purpose of making a profit. So you hold that man cannot improve on food that was created by God. I think a lot of us, uh, well, a lot of us human beings uh, over the past few decades thought maybe we could improve on it, or at least we wouldn't harm it by pumping the soil full of fertilizers, by pumping the food full of chemicals. Now people are waking up to that fact so I can't grow all my own food, <laughs> can't grow it all in the, in the way that it's, it's meant to be uh, grown. So how can I uh, succeed, improve my health uh, or, you know, my wife, uh, when she's at the grocery store, improve our nutrition, uh, battling this two-tiered system of food production? The first step is to get the mind locked into the value of natural foods. It's not just going out and buying. If you're buying and you don't understand what you're doing, you're not going to stick with it. I'll get back to the, the vaccine thing. You know, we have a two-tiered system, one where we're being blatantly lied to despite the statistics. Take the shot, take the booster, take the booster, take the booster. Nothing to see here on the other end. So we look at this system. 75% of this is uh, full of pesticides, herbicides, and such, right? Nothing to see here. Don't worry about the statistics. Just keep eating. Trust us. We have to be past that point. We have to be critical thinkers. Food nourishes us. So we have to get back to saying, look, we have to do something more than what's available to us through these experts that lie to us. Organic farms are biodynamic farms or regenerative farms. What I would say and what I do with my wife is we take a lot of time to study the system around us. Most of us have farms around us. Even if you got to take a 20, 30 minute drive telling you it's worth it, go talk to a farmer. If you can't grow, we grow a lot. I've completely torn apart my garden in the back and we've just, we're growing stuff. It looks beautiful right now, but we just put in boxes everywhere to grow. Okay. That's what we do. It's a lot of work. And, and I give credit to my wife. She's a hard worker there. We also go outside to farms and we talk to farmers and there you have to build a little bit of trust with somebody out there. So we say, look, let me see what you do here. Is it necessarily an organic certification? Sometimes it isn't. Can I see what you do? Can you prove to me that you're using natural methods? I'm telling you, sometimes they, the organic is very expensive, the certification. And so sometimes farmers just use natural methods, but they can actually prove it to you. I walk the farms with them. You know, we get organic apples at one place, we get our meat at other places, and we have a relationship with these farmers and we trust them because we talk to them. They, you can tell when I talk to somebody about fitness, they look in my eyes and they can see my passion for it. I convince people. I've been in this a long time. When I talk to a farmer and I can see the passion in his eyes and in his words, and he convinces me, I say, okay, you know what? I want to buy off you. And I, and I want to be loyal to you down the road. If you give me access to what you have, I will come back year after year. 
And so we do this little tour. Sometimes it takes us two, three, four hours a month. That's fine. We feel safe with that. So that's what I would say to our listeners. Don't allow how you feel about getting food and your time frame to get in the way of slipping into a disease. And I say that, I use that word very purposefully. Most people have no idea they're traveling towards disease. They actually slip into it. And when it hits them, they're surprised. It can take a long time. So I would say don't allow that to happen to you. Use critical thinking. Take some time during the month. Go do your circuit. Talk to these people. They're beautiful people. They're passionate for the environment and the ground that they work on. Their hands are dirty. Go look at their fingernails. They love what they do. And then that person is going to help you towards a better road to good health. It is worth it. It is worth, first of all, buying organic at the grocery, especially certain foods is even more important than others to buy them organically. Uh, to remember that you're in an adversarial relationship <laughs> somewhat with food producers. But also, it is possible. It is something you can do to actually look for farms in your state or your province to actually meet community-supported agriculture. And like you said, I love that. You can see it in their eyes. They're beautiful people. We, we all benefit when we spend a lot of the day outside, when we spend it working. And you see that in people who have chosen that way of life. And like you said, they are often very willing to, to meet you, to show you their, you know, what it is that they're doing. And that is a, a huge benefit to you. We, and as you said, to perhaps even grow your own food, you can trust yourself. <laughs> you know exactly what's going into it when you're doing it yourself, whether it's a small porch garden or a, or a large garden. And it might be more possible than you think to know your food and where it came from. Jorg Martin, we thank you as always for being our consistent contributor on nutrition and on health and fitness. You can read about this at thetrumpet.com. Look for Jorg Martin, J-O-R-G-M-A-R-D-I-A-N for articles not just on nutrition, but on fitness, as I mentioned, uh, going back for years and years now. So we appreciate all of your contributions, Mr. Martin. Thanks for having me. Welcome back to Trumpet Hour. For this segment, we go overseas to the Middle East region and to the most historic city in the world, Jerusalem. The Middle East watcher for Trumpet Hour is Mihailo Zekic. Hello. If you listen to our Week in Review on weekends, you are used to hearing him discuss what is happening in Israel, the strategic waterways, the diplomatic summits and so forth, what's happening with Iran, with other countries in that region. He is currently in the Middle East and in that historic city, Jerusalem, participating in archaeological excavations there. And between laboring with trowel, pick, brushes, and buckets, between language crash courses in Hebrew and between touring ancient historical sites, he has continued reporting to you for the Week in Review. But how does Mihailo Zekic know what to look for when he's looking at news in Jerusalem, in Israel, in the Middle East? And what should you look for? when you are looking at news from the Middle East, from Israel, from Jerusalem. 
what are, say, three keys to understanding news from the Middle East? That is what he wants to give you today. So Mihailo Zekic, introduce us to the most important city in Middle East news and world news, in fact, Jerusalem. Well, um, Jerusalem has a pretty big history. A lot of our listeners may know, of course, that it's a very old city, that it uh, has a lot of history going back thousands of years. But some of you are surprised as to just how long this history is. Both uh, lots of good history, lots of bad history, lots of stuff in between. The first place to start is actually the first couple of chapters in the Bible, which talks about God creating or rather recreating the earth and uh, fashioning everything and planting a garden in a place called Eden. Now, you compare that with different sections of the Bible, different chapters, and there's actually quite a bit of uh, evidence to suggest Eden is actually, or the Garden of Eden, is the location of Jerusalem. For example, the four rivers discussed in uh, Genesis 2, the Pishon, Gihon, Hittichel and Euphrates. The Jewish historian Josephus, writing from the time of the early Roman Empire, said those are all major rivers around the uh, Middle East today. Uh, Gihon, that's uh, Jerusalem's uh, underground spring, is called the Gihon Spring. Ties into one of these ancient rivers. You And you can even go back further than uh, Genesis 1 chronologically and look at chapters like Ezekiel 28, which talks about the carib Lucifer being placed in Eden. This is, of course, long before man was created. God has had things going on in the area around Jerusalem, probably even Jerusalem itself, for a long, long time. As far as the historical record goes, following the biblical narrative in Genesis 14, which is a chapter that discusses the patriarch Abraham, you have a certain Melchizedek, who is the king of Salem, or Jerusalem, an early name of, uh, of, the, of the city. You can look at other biblical scriptures to see that. So Jerusalem was around as a, as a city-state, as a state that was worshiping God. Melchizedek was the priest of the Most High God. That would date around to roughly the year 1800 BC. So that would be in the Bronze Age. Uh, Jerusalem after that, I mean, the biblical record in the, those early chapters can be a bit patchy, but it states that eventually the Jebusites, a Canaanite tribe, took over the city and renamed it Jebus. In roughly the year 1000 BC, the Israelite king David conquered Jebus, renamed it Jerusalem, or and also the city of David. That's another name for the oldest part of Jerusalem. Uh, after the United Kingdom of Israel fell apart, Jerusalem became the capital of Judah, and or, which was one of the which was a tribe that remained loyal to David's throne, as well as the tribe of Benjamin. And after Judah gets it, you get to Judah's destruction in 585 by the Babylonians, and you just have a whole slew of empires coming one right after the other, controlling Jerusalem. You have the Babylonians, as I just mentioned, eventually the Persians under Cyrus the Great conquer Babylon, conquer uh, the land of Israel, send the Jews back to Jerusalem to rebuild it, or him and kings after him. Uh, eventually Persia was conquered by Alexander the Great. Uh, the Greek king, his empire falls apart after he dies. You have Egypt, which is controlled by a Greek monarchy, and Syria, which is the same thing, uh, controlled by a Greek monarchy, fighting back and forth over Jerusalem and the Holy Land. Eventually, the Jews win their freedom back under a short-lived state we call the Hasmonean period. 
which is replaced in the first century BC by the Herodian period. Herod of uh, infamous uh, killing the babies of Bethlehem fame was a client king of the Roman Empire. He was a really monumental builder and he constructed a lot of structures. After his death, the Romans took more control over that city. In the year 70 AD, it's a pretty famous year for Jerusalem. That's when Jerusalem was destroyed a second time at the temple, at the Jerusalem temple a second time by the Romans. Since then, you've the Romans stayed around for a long time, including up to the Byzantine era. That's when, as Western Rome fell apart, the Eastern Empire, based in Constantinople, stuck around uh, under Christianity. And... That's the area that we call maybe ancient Jerusalem or the, this whole time period. As you can see, it's a pretty broad period spanning multiple thousands of years. But a, and with a lot of other – a lot of different empires coming in, leaving their mark. And you could still see the marks of most of these empires in Jerusalem today. Even going back to Melchizedek's time in the Bronze Age, some of Jer Jerusalem's earliest structures date from this period, including a round chamber that was supposed to collect water from the Gihon Spring. You could visit it as a tourist today. Um, I mentioned the city of David, uh, that part of Jerusalem named after David. You could still tour that part of the city today as well, and including a certain uh, structure called the Large Stone Structure, which was identified by archaeologist, the late Dr. Uh, Elat Mazar, as David's palace. You go th a little bit further up uh, from the city of David, and you have a lot of – on the Ophel, a lot of areas that uh, King Solomon, David's son, uh, developed, and you could still wander around those ruins today. And during the Persian period, Nehemiah, the uh, the, the governor that was sent back by the Persians to uh, Jerusalem, you could still even see a section of a wall dating to his time, matching the account of the wall he built you have a um, – during the Greek period, you have – there's a lot of monumental tombs still in Jerusalem from that time. When you get to the Roman time, that's when a lot of in, uh, stuff everyone's interested uh, seems to pop up. Uh, that's uh, the time when the structure that the Wailing Wall was a part of, the holiest city – or the holiest uh, shrine, I guess we could say, in Judaism. Um, eventually down the road when uh, Constantine converts to Catholicism, that's when the foundations for the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, where Catholics believe Christ was crucified and, and entombed, it, uh, isn't there. Current structure dates from a little bit after that, but it still dates to that time. Uh, and you even have uh, Emperor Justinian, who uh, uh, ruled over uh, an incarnation of what we would call the Holy Roman Empire. He built a, developed a lot of the city as well. Uh, moving on past the Byzantines, uh, the Arabs um, conquered the city in the 7th century, specifically the Caliphate or the empire that Muhammad previously established. Different Arab dynasties controlled the, the Caliphate. It's that, then when the Dome of the Rock, the Muslim shrine on top of the Temple Mount was constructed. Uh, I think it's interesting that uh, the Dome of the Rock dates to – a near in the latter half of when these empires were doing their conquering, but it, when it was first founded in the seventh century, most countries that we know today didn't exist. Like England, as we know it, didn't exist. Russia didn't exist. America certainly didn't exist. So, goes to show you a uh, how storied the history of the city is. 
in between the Muslim periods, you have the Crusaders um, coming from all over Europe, England, France, Germany, having a presence in the city. Eventually, the Ottoman Empire or the Turks take it take over the uh, city from the arabs in the 1500s that's when the famous sultan suleiman the magnificent built the walls of what we call now the old city so it's the old city but the walls are only 500 years old about so it's really the new city uh but to a lot of other countries they'd be old the turks lost world war one in 1918 and the british took over the area as a uh, a mandate or really a colony for a few decades 1948, the state of Israel takes over half the city. Jordan controls the other half. In 1967, the Israelis in the Six-Day War unify the city. So that's a bit of a whirlwind look at the very storied, very interesting history of Jerusalem. Quite a whirl through the history of one particular special city from its origin as a garden, as you brought out there, to its earliest recorded existence as a city under the king and priest Melchizedek almost 4,000 years ago to its existence as a Canaanite city, to its conquest by King David 3,000 years ago, to the eventual fall of Jerusalem roughly 2,500 years ago, to its repeated changing of the guard, as you said there, Babylon, Persia, the Greeks, Rome, and then on through the last 1,500 years, the Arabs, the Crusaders, the Ottomans, the British, to the Jewish state that exists today for the purpose of approving Mihailo Zekic's visit here in the summer of 2023. You can see so much of this city's past in biblical history and other histories, and you can see it in person above the surface and resurfacing through archaeology as we speak. Welcome back to Trumpet Hour and our crash course with Mihailo Zekic on how to understand the Middle East and how to understand Jerusalem. Mihailo, why has this particular city been so important and so fought over? Why is it important today? Well, on paper, there's a lot of reasons you'd think it wouldn't be important, unlike a lot of other historic capitals in this part of the world. Um, It's not located to any major river. It's not on the sea. It's located inland in the mountains near a desert. But it's important not so much for its geography, although it does sit on the uh, crossroads where Africa, Middle East, and Europe would meet. So there's some value to that. But the main importance is religiously. The holiest and near holiest sites of a lot of major religions in this world are in Jerusalem. You have – I mentioned the Wailing Wall for Jews. You have the Church of the Holy Sepulchre for uh, Christians. You have the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque for Muslims. Um, and even just walking around the city, you could see every di- different denomination of Christianity wants some major church in Jerusalem. Where I work near the Al-Aqsa Mosque, you look across the valley and there's a, a really imposing Russian Orthodox church sitting over there. On my way walking over there in the morning, you pass by the Church of Scotland's uh, main church uh, in, in the holy city. So every church wants a bit of slice of Jerusalem for themselves. But it's not just important to man's religions and uh, man's churches and denominations. It's obviously important to God. They mentioned it being a probable location for the Garden of Eden. It's where 
David conquered, as we mentioned, and the throne of David, uh, God's throne was established. Solomon later built God's temple there. It's the the city that Jesus Christ spent so much of his time, and uh, Christ even in the in the Gospel of Matthew called it the city of the great king. Um, as a little anecdote, I once heard a joke that um, in the Vatican, there's a golden telephone that where you can pick up the phone and talk to God, but it costs $1,000 a minute. But in Jerusalem, there's another golden telephone, and it only costs 50 cents to make a call because it's a local call. So <laughs> you could see the kind of, this, uh, even with a little humor like that, you could see the kind of importance people spiritually place on Jerusalem. So Jerusalem as a religious capital as the religious capital. It turns out that the creator of human beings hasn't just chosen to work with them in a general, uh, overall abstract sense, but has chosen to work with them locally, so to speak, with specific individuals and across the millennia chosen to work with a specific human city. Now, when I'm watching the news, when I'm reading the Jerusalem Post or the Times of Israel or whatever it might be, I can get overwhelmed and a little confused as to what's happening. And really, my main question when I'm looking at that is, which of this is important and where is it leading? And you ask yourself those questions, Mihailo Zekic, as well. I know when you're preparing for Trumpet Hour Week interview. So can you give us three keys to the city, so to speak, so we can ignore what's unimportant and spot what is important? Sure. Well, if you wanted one overarching key that you could have the three sub-keys, if you will, latch onto, it's Bible prophecy. The Bible doesn't just talk a lot about Jerusalem's past, it also talks a lot about Jerusalem's future. And prophecy is our key to understanding that. And it's not even just prophecy that, you know, relates to our time today or is yet to be fulfilled or whatever. You could even there's even prophecies in the Bible that were made of Jerusalem and then were fulfilled since then. Uh, a classic one is recorded in Isaiah 36 and 37. Another empire we didn't mention is the ancient Assyrians. We mentioned them because they didn't conquer Jerusalem. They tried to under the days of King Hezekiah. But specifically in chapter 37, verses 33 and 34, God said that the Assyrians wouldn't so much as shoot an arrow at the city, and he would later supernaturally defeat them. Archaeologists today, they found a lot of uh, arrowheads from Babylon's conquest of Jerusalem when Nebuchadnezzar tried to take over, or did take over the city. They haven't found a single arrowhead, though, from the Assyrians and King Sennacherib's invasion. So even thousands of years later, archaeology can even corroborate fulfilled prophecies like these. But if you wanted three general keys to the city, Relating to Bible prophecy, I mean, there's a lot of prophecy about Jerusalem and about the state of Israel in general. Here are three of the more important ones. And the first one I will say is Jerusalem is a burdensome stone. That key is taken from a prophecy in the book of Zechariah, verses 1 to 3, where God says he would make Jerusalem a burdensome stone to every people, every empire that would try to try to take over the city for themselves, I should say, try to put their uh, grip over it. This is what our editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Fleury, wrote in the his free book, The Eternal Has Chosen Jerusalem, quote, Truly, every empire and nation that has ruled Jerusalem has had burdensome and painful problems. To this day, this city is at the heart of the world's thorniest political and diplomatic dilemma. It is a hotspot for devastating news caused by religious and political resentments, terrorist attacks, and other violence. It is a powder keg charged with nuclear potential. No other city is so fraught with international tension. End quote. 
Now, you look at historically, you know, the, the Muslims conquer it, the Crusaders conquer it, the Muslims conquer it back, the Crusaders come back. That's been the case. Modern history, the British take it over from the Turks. The, even the Jews were having terror attacks against the British to get them to, to leave. They leave. The Arabs take over half the city, including the important old uh, historic city. The Jews take it over back from the Arabs. Since then, they've had problems with terror attacks and the Palestinians. Uh, when Donald Trump recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital in 2017, the whole world got into a hoo-ha. Um, when the UN tries to mediate a deal, things fall apart. When the Jews and Arabs try to make a deal amongst themselves, everything falls apart. Jerusalem is a burdensome stone for whoever tries to tackle it, and that's true to this day. And the second key I like to bring in is that Jerusalem will have division. Now, another pertinent prophecy we've covered on this program before is in Zechariah, also in the book of Zechariah, in this case, chapters 14, verses 1 to 2. It talks about uh, the return of Christ and uh, all the chaos and mayhem that's going to happen after that. And then listing the events, it, it starts with uh, the return of, uh, of Christ or the return of the Messiah in that verse. And then it, the last uh, event in that order is half the city will fall into captivity. Now, looking at that, it doesn't really make much sense. All this chaos is happening, and the last thing to happen seems relatively less uh, catastrophic. But that's actually a prophecy or events listed backwards. Half the city falling into captivity is what triggers the events that lead up to the return of Christ, and our editor-in-chief has written extensively on that as well. Uh, you could tie that in with another prophecy in Hosea 5.13, which talks about Judah, the biblical name for the Jews, of course, where they get their name today, having a wound, and you look into the original Hebrew for that and other uh, passages, and it talks about uh, that word wound means a remedy or a remedy that is a wound, and you can see the peace process with the Palestinians is that wound today. And that will eventually lead to half the city being taken into captivity. They're the ones that want East Jerusalem, the section of Jerusalem where the historic core is or all the holy sites are, which is why we also watch Israeli-Palestinian relations and how they're falling apart, specifically how they fall apart in Jerus uh, regarding Jerusalem. So that's the second key. And the third key, I would say, it m might seem a bit of a tangent, but it's related, and that third key is Jerusalem is important to Europe. Hosea 5.13 talks about the Jews because when they see their wound, when they see the problems happening with that, they turn to Assyria, we just mentioned earlier. Now, the modern descendants of those ancient Assyrians, uh, historical and biblical proof point to them being the modern Germans and settling in what is today Germany. And you can extend that to include the European Union and United Europe as a whole, because Germany, uh, Europe, of course, is united under a common currency, common border, etc. And Germany is the the beating heart of that union. They're the largest economy. They're the largest population. They call most of the shots in the government, and talks about the Jews turning to Germany to solve their problem. You combine that with other prophecies like Daniel 11, verses 40 to 45, another prophecy we talk about, and eventually Germany is going to stick its fingers into Jerusalem and not let go. It's going to want Jerusalem for itself. That same prophecy in Daniel talks about a religious leader planting his, uh, his tabernacle, so to speak, his presence in the holy city. 
Europe wants Jerusalem. The Catholic Church wants Jerusalem. Germany wants Jerusalem. They may be a little bit more underhanded with it than, say, the Arabs or the Jews or the Iranians, but you see that increasing all the time with uh, Israel constantly looking to Europe as a partner, with Europe becoming more of a power player in the Middle East in general. And so that's another trend we watch uh, regarding Bible prophecy regarding Jerusalem. So three keys to understanding the city that God has chosen, three keys to understanding Jerusalem, past, present, and future. Jerusalem is a burden. Jerusalem will be cut in half. And Jerusalem is a target for Europe. It's a city that empires, the greatest empires have struggled for and are struggling for and will struggle for. But you and I were talking earlier, Mihailo Zekic, about another key, and it has to do with a group of people who on paper might appear to be diplomatically, financially, militarily insignificant. Yes, well, if our listeners want a bonus key, so to speak, based on prophecy, it would be that Jerusalem is important to God's church. We talked about how Jerusalem is important to God, how he's invested a lot in that city. Well, God, through Jesus Christ, founded a church, and it's still on earth today. And God, through his church, through his representatives, God still has a vested interest in Jerusalem. God still wants to reach that city. This is a prophecy in Isaiah 40, verse 9. I'll read it uh, in the Jewish Publication Society translation. O thou that tellest good tidings to Zion, which is a historic mountain or hill in Jerusalem, that tellest good tidings to Zion, get thee up into the high mountain. O thou that tellest good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Now the next verse ties it into the return of Christ, the return of the Messiah to the earth. This is an end time prophecy. And it's talking about a thou, so to speak, a person representing God that has a message for Jerusalem, for the cities of Judah, preparing the way, so to speak, for this second coming. And as Jerusalem gets more and more chaotic, as it becomes a burdensome stone for more people, as it becomes divided, a lot of people could look at that and get a little bit nervous about it or uh, uh, disconcerted seeing all this violence happening um, in this one city. But there's great hope in Jerusalem, and God wants to make sure people see that hope. He has a work going on in Jerusalem, and he that as the world goes further and further as the conditions in Jerusalem get more and more dire. God's work in Jerusalem is going to go up and up and up for more people to see, for more people to see that hope and to be able to comfort it with the good news that follows it, which of course is the return of Christ. So look for Jerusalem to be a burden, Jerusalem to be cut in half, Jerusalem to be a target of Europe, but also look for Jerusalem to be the site of work being done by God's one true church. Mihailo Zekic, we thank you for handing us those keys today and for working extra, for working late, for making special arrangements while you're in Jerusalem to be with us on Trumpet Hour here on the Wednesday show as well as on the Weekend Review. Thank you for having me. Mr. Zekic said of all the literature you can get at thetrumpet.com slash literature, probably the best single booklet you could get is The Eternal Has Chosen Jerusalem by Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry. The Eternal Has Chosen Jerusalem. You can get that for free, of course, at thetrumpet.com slash literature.
So that conversation with Mihailo Zekic takes place during a busy summer for those at the archaeological excavations there in ancient Jerusalem, for those at other international offices in Australia, Canada, England, and the Philippines, for those here at the Headquarters Administration Building in Edmond, Oklahoma, for people involved in PCG projects here and around the world. Uh, the PCG, the Philadelphia Church of God, is the organization that produces Trumpet Radio, thetrumpet.com, the Philadelphia Trumpet Magazine, what else? The Trumpet Daily, the Trumpet Brief Newsletter, Trumpet Hour, of course, and a lot of periodicals and podcasts and books and booklets and videos and organizations and initiatives that are not named Trumpet. One of those projects was this year's ministerial conference that just ended yesterday, the semi-annual convention of uh, 18 lectures across five days attended by this year 49 ministers and their wives from Australia, Canada, the Caribbean, Colombia, England, the Philippines, South Africa, and from 11 American states, all taking place there across the way from the administration building over at the newly renovated Armstrong Auditorium. And the conference is always an occasion for a few special events, too. It's the one event where almost every single minister and his wife is together here at headquarters, listening to lectures, conversing in between, dining together here on the campus, served by students from the PCG College, and particularly the traditional staff dinner on Monday night. About 100 ministers and wives, plus about 100 staff members, plus the college students, uh, but people also take the opportunity to come visit for Sabbath services and the Sabbath tea and to go out to restaurants together, take tours of the campus, and this year to see another showing of Celtic Throne. It was surely the largest PCG ministerial conference, and this has been the biggest tour for the PCG Irish dance show, Celtic Throne. The show has toured for the past four summers, and this year they packed up the lights and the costumes and the sets and dozens of people and toured 13 cities in May, June, and July, plus three shows at Armstrong Auditorium. And the last show, by the way, of the summer is on Sunday. You can have a look at what it's all about at CelticThrone.com if you like. So that had to be the largest and longest PCG project ever, I think, in terms of logistics at least. But at the same time, the church held three more personal appearance campaigns. So these were lectures by Philadelphia Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry and executive editor Stephen Flurry, given to Trumpet subscribers in Columbus, Ohio, Wilmington, Delaware, and Raleigh, North Carolina, making for an even busier summer. And these were coordinated to coincide with Celtic Throne showings as well. So back to today. As you have ministers driving and flying back from Celtic Throne in the conference uh, to serve PCG members in 50 countries around the world, and you have the campaigns done for now. You have some of those Herbert W. Armstrong College students who just did more than a dozen shows arriving back from about 100 total hours of driving, about 4,700 total miles. Now switching over to a week of food service or cleanup for the ministerial conference and then immediately preparing to serve as counselors and sports instructors and workers for youth camp, summer educational program which is about to start up. And then after that, they start back to the college academic year and their regular part-time jobs. Now that summer camp schedule is still naturally preliminary, but more than 100 PCG youth are inbound to Edmond. On Sunday, they can see another Celtic throne, the last one of the summer. Then it's 
camp orientation the next day, and then two and a half weeks of summer camp. I'm looking at an early and subject to change version of the schedule here, but I'm seeing archery, canoeing, cycling, basketball, flag football, frisbee, golf, rugby, softball, soccer, swimming, tennis, volleyball, water polo, water skiing. What else? Band, broadcasting, dance, speech, song leading, grilling, hairstyling, sewing, baking. And that's about what? That's about half of all of the activities uh, that are planned on this schedule. And all of this is happening while the food services department continues serving hundreds of plates per meal, while the buildings and grounds crew continues tending and trimming and repairing and maintaining and also finishing construction of another new building on campus. All of this is happening while broadcasting continues producing the Key of David and the Trumpet Daily and a dozen other programs. And while the call center operators here on campus are answering hundreds of calls today, while thousands of letters and so forth are coming in, while the Trumpet, Royal Vision, True Education, Let the Stone Speak, and other publications are being written, edited, produced, designed, and distributed, and while dozens of translators are producing written and spoken media in about a dozen languages, and while English language audio recordings are being produced as well, and all of this while PCG regional offices in Australia, Canada, England, and the Philippines, and one right here next door to the recording studio here in the uh, administration building, Latin America, uh, they, as they continue answering correspondence and sending out literature and serving the members and preparing for the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, that convention that's coming all too soon, right after the summer ends. And meanwhile, excavations, as we mentioned before, and archaeological publications ongoing in Jerusalem a third archaeological exhibit is being planned for Armstrong Auditorium. The business office is in the middle of some of its most extensive reorganizations here at headquarters. The festival department is gearing up for its busiest time. And those dozens of ministers are filtering back out across the globe to congregations where hundreds or thousands of members are driving for hours in many cases to attend Sabbath services, to attend Holy Day services, and for hours again to attend picnics and fundraisers and get-togethers. Uh, college graduates, Herbert Armstrong college graduates are working new jobs. High school graduates from Imperial Academy are getting ready to go to college. I help produce PCG News, which is just a weekly update on all these goings-on. And I can tell you that this has been, this is being, <laughs> the busiest summer yet for the PCG here at the administration building over in Armstrong Auditorium, across the grounds here in Edmond, Oklahoma, and at regional offices and in congregations around the world. Uh, I have seen several summers pass, several years pass, and this thing, this work that is going on here is growing and thriving like a living thing. It's not the largest church in the world, and I dare say the largest is not the truest. It's not the largest church, but it is alive. This organization that produces Trumpet Radio has a life of its own, you could say. And it's intriguing to me that there's not just one personality driving all this or, or a bunch of people's pet projects. is just doors opening and people who are quite unified walking through those doors and following the lead of Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry, who of course presides over all the other operations of the PCG as well. So there's certainly a unity of command there, and uh, much of, of these projects heavily depend on that unity of command. But Mr. Flurry would be the first to tell you that he doesn't power at all, but something does. So I advise you to keep an eye on the PCG, the Trumpet.com and PCG.Church. That's a good way to do it, Trumpet.com. 
and pcg.church. Uh, CelticThrone.com as well, as if you have time before Sunday. Keep an eye on the PCG. As a PCG news reporter, I'm expecting more and more projects of more and more significance. And you can too. That is Trumpet Hour for today. Email me at letters at the trumpet.com. Let us know what you'd like to know more about, whether it's about the trumpet message or the organization behind the trumpet. Uh, thank you to Jesse Hester for your dedicated work and a special final thank you to Jorg Mardian. And thank you for listening. And we look forward to being back with you again on Friday with Trumpet Hour Week in Review. Thanks for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Trumpet Hour.